whenever you have these very negative biases on an asset class, when there's blood in the street, as Baron de Rothschild once said, that's when you want to start looking at this stuff. It's painful. It's terrible to try to own this stuff. It's no fun to try to own it. But that's look, you don't get buying opportunities when everybody's piling onto an asset. Right? <laughs> if everybody's buying it, there's no opportunity to make money with it. Right? You may make money over a month or two, but you're not going to make long term real money with it. You got to buy stuff when nobody wants it. So is this the blood in the streets moment for Bob? Oh, yeah, it's been that way. Welcome to Wealthion. I'm Wealthion founder Adam Taggart, welcoming you back here at the end of another week for another weekly market recap featuring my good and stalwart friend, portfolio manager, Lance Roberts. Lance, welcome, buddy. It's a Friday the 13th. Yeah, exactly. So uh, lots of stuff to talk about today. Lots of stuff to talk about today. Um, actually, an awful lot to talk about, um, because since the last time you were on last week, we've had uh, some very tragic uh, but very concerning uh, global geopolitical developments. Um, I'm very interested to see how that was might affect the markets. Um, they, they certainly, for whatever reason, uh, didn't didn't serve as a drag on them this week. Uh, market is up for the week, uh, about 100 S&P points so far. Um, but I'm curious. Um, what what impact, either short and or long term, uh, are you expecting from the the recent developments in the Middle East? Well, you know, it's interesting that uh, you, you said that because I'm actually writing about that in this weekend's newsletter. Uh, I'm shocked! I'm, I'm shocked you're writing an article about something I talked about. I tell you, yeah, exactly. So, yeah, at realinvestmentadvice.com, our newsletter this weekend is actually I've, I actually drew a very long term chart of the S and P 500 going back to 1900 and listed all of the war events that have gone on. Uh, conflicts, wars, interventions, et cetera. And, and while sometimes you get a kind of a knee-jerk sell-off in the markets, like, you know, oh my gosh, this is going to be really tragic. Um, wars are actually good for markets. Uh, the reason is, is they create economic growth. Uh, you've got to produce arms and supplies and all kinds of stuff for the war effort, either for your own troops or for supplying, um, you know, troops, uh, uh, sorry, uh, weapons or support for other countries um, that, that generates economic activity. So markets are pretty quick to, to factor in kind of the more bullish impact on markets and earnings, you know, but, you know, you can't dismiss the human tragedy. That's the, the important thing. But from a market perspective, they tend to be very kind of knee-jerk events initially, uh, and then markets tend to start to rally off of them after that. Okay. Um, yeah, obviously, we don't know how this is going to end up yet. Um, and, I, mean, I hate to sort of put it this way, you know, if you're an economy that is supplying war material uh, to what's going on, but you're not actually engaged in it yourself on your own soil, you know, yeah, maybe it probably is stimulative uh, yeah. in, a, in, in a, a cruel way to think about it. Um, you know, Middle East powder keg area um, in this particular conflict in Israelis versus Arabs, I'm, I'm not a geopolitical analyst, but you have a lot of the world's largest powers that have a side, you know, largely in, in that uh, in that conflict, um, meaning they could be drawn into this if this thing continues to worsen, right? And there's you know all sorts of concerns that Israel may retaliate against Iran, who it thinks, you know, funded the Hamas attack, and now Israel's engaged with Hezbollah up in the north as well. So you know this, yeah. this has potential to spiral, and hopefully it doesn't. But if it does, no, oil stop, prices stop, go up. Stop! Yeah? Stop! Stop! 
this is the argument that always comes out every time there's a conflict in the Middle East. And not saying, look, Nostradamus once said that, you know, one of his predictions was that World War III would start out in the Middle East. But don't forget, we were in Desert Storm in 1990. We invaded Afghanistan. We invaded Iraq. We've invaded, you know, we've been involved in wars with terrorists for the last 40 years. And every time that we get involved or every time something happens, whether it's Russia uh, bombing in Syria or whatever it is, everybody immediately jumps and goes like, oh, my gosh, this is going to be the start of World War Three. It hasn't yet. And, and again, but this is the, the same narrative that comes out every single time there's conflict in the Middle East. And, you know, it's you simply have to realize that at the end of the day, while everybody's got a hot, a hot button for a nuclear war, Nobody really wants that. Not even Iran wants a nuclear war because the the consequences of that. Look, Israel's armed to the teeth with nukes. Iran's got nukes, even though they won't admit it. And so a middle a, a nuclear war in the Middle East is not good for them or for anybody. Nobody wants it. That's why they call nuclear deterrence. But we've had this we've had this same narrative for forty years, and and this always continues. Immediately, as soon as something happens, everybody jumps to this kind of situation. Israel and the Palestinians have been in conflict with each other since 1965. <laughs> and, you know, and, and it's, it's, you know, this is something that continues to happen over and over again with them. And will this time, you know, will Israel push all the way to the coast this time and, and, and finally end this issue with, with Gaza and, and the Palestinians? I don't know. That's not my job. But, you know, this, this, I, and again, I've gotten so many emails this week. Oh, this is the beginning of World War III. I need gold and bunkers. The, the markets are going to look past this very quickly. Okay. Um, so I totally hope you're right. Um, fortunately, history has been on your side so far that, that none of the prior escalations here have gone all the way to 11, you know, on the threat level. Not saying you can't. And that's sort of where I was going with the question, which is, okay, hopefully not. World War Three, because that's a you know nuclear, you know, like th that's a whole other ball of wax. Yeah. But let's say it 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 metastasizes to the point where folks think Lindsey Graham has a good idea, and we start you know blowing up Iranian oil refineries in retaliation for you know what's happening on the ground uh, with Hamas or whatnot. Um, you know that would obviously destabilize the oil markets i mean is i guess my point is is you know um is is there a a risk sure. premium here that that if this continues to metastasize will creep into markets here and have some sort of notable impact and if so how would you expect that to manifest or you just like i don't know we just have to take it day by day you do you just take it day by day i mean we can you know the problem with coming up with all of these kind of again you know what we're talking about here are third and fourth standard deviation events right mm -hmm. So sure, anything can happen, right? And and when it does, then you'll have to to make some adjustments at that time when it occurs. But you know, this is the whole problem that we've had with you know the inflation fight over the last year, and and you know, all these things is that people said, well, you know, if you've got inflation, I don't want to be in risk assets, but that's been exactly the place to be. You know, uh, you know, everybody's like, well, if you have inflation, you want to be in gold. That's been the worst place to be. So you know, it's it's not. None of this stuff plays out as if everybody as, as the way everybody expects us, because that's how markets work. When when everybody thinks one thing is going to happen, the markets always do something different. And so that's why you've got to always just take this for what it is rather than making these one sided bets of, 
oh, I need to be in a bunker now because this is going to definitely manifest itself into World War III. If it does, none of this is going to matter. The stock right, market is right. not going to matter. You know, whether you're in a bunker or not, it's not going to matter. None of this is going to matter. So, you know, let's just pray for the best that cooler heads eventually prevail. This is uh, this is kind of one of the normal conflicts that we've seen between the the, the Israelis and the Palestinian over the uh, Palestinians over the last you know 30, 40, 50 years, and it, it resolves itself, and they go back to their separate their their separate corners, and then we move on for a while, and this will happen again. But you know, we'll, again, making these big one sided bets typically never work out for the better. Okay. And, uh, you know, just to my question there about oil and its impacts, you know, yeah. interestingly, looking at oil, you know, oil prices, it, it rose in response to this, but it's not even back at the highs where it was yeah. like two weeks ago, right? So obviously, the oil market's not that worried at this point. Well, again, you had a you had a massive overvaluation of oil, um, you know, just a, a couple of months ago, oil prices had a very big run, they were extremely overbought. We were talking about that, you and I were talking about yep. the very extremely overbought oil. Uh, we sold down our positions in oil stocks a couple of months ago uh, in anticipation of that correction. We've had a very nice correction. And yesterday we added to our oil positions again because now they're oversold. And, you know, or not yesterday, day before yesterday. Um, but now that the oil prices are very oversold. So you just needed a headline of some sort to create some commodities buying in that. So again, yeah, uh, traders are, are buying some oil uh, futures right now, and that's driving up the price of oil on anticipation that you know this could be something else and this could cramp supplies. But again, Israel and, and, and the Palestinians are not that big of producers of oil uh, on the relative map. So the, the only way this really starts to, to take hold is if you know, OPEC says, guess what? We're not going to ship any oil at all now because of, of we don't like what's going on. You know, they're, they're not producing more oil. They're keeping their cuts in place for right now. So that is going to weigh on supply. Obviously, we have the issue with the SPR here in the United States. That's got to be refilled at some point. So that's going to crimp on supplies. So there's certainly some catalysts that can keep oil prices elevated, but the market's already kind of factoring all that stuff in. Okay. And and so speaking of the market, do me a favor if you can pull up your S&P chart that we try to pull up every week here. Um, back to your point. So, you know, one of the reasons why we're, we're kicking things off here with what's going on over in the Middle East is I think, you know, an understandable question that the armchair investor has had is, oh my gosh, is this like a, a sell the market kind of news event? Um, certainly hasn't been so far. Um, I don't, I, I think you're saying, no, it probably isn't. Um, we've been talking a lot about how um, the market was approaching strongly oversold levels on a technical basis, and you've got the chart up here right now. Yeah. Um, we can we can see the bounce that it took, um, you know, two weeks or so back, a um, few weeks back. Um, and you know, we told people, look, if you've got a really big bearish thesis right now, just know that from a technical standpoint, um, the market looks like it's poised for a bounce. It actually did bounce. It's now coming back down as you're putting that line in there to some sort of support. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I'm going to hand you the torch. But I, 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 the, the question here is sort of, you know, should this is this a sort of sell the news market? Should we all get real defensive? I'm going to guess your answer is, is not until we see some more confirmation. Uh, well, yeah, a couple of things. First of all, is that, you know, you, you, we came down the 200 day moving averages we talked about. And last week, you know, we wrote in the newsletter, hey, you know, market sitting on 200 days moving average support. Uh, we expect a strong rally next week as we head into earnings season. Uh, that'll trigger a MACD buy signal. And that all occurred. And so we had this very sharp rally earlier in the week. 
ran right into resistance at the, which is those two moving averages where they're basically touching. That's the 50 and the 100 day moving average. So the first test at resistance failed and we're now sitting on the 20 day moving average, that orange line, which is support. And this is very normal for a, an initial reflexive rally off an oversold condition. Importantly though, we did trigger the MACD buy signal. So that triggers our seasonally strong period for the markets. Just started earnings today, had uh, Citigroup, JP Morgan, others uh, reporting uh, bank earnings today. Those came in better than expected. Um, and also they had less loan loss reserves uh, this time, suggesting that charge offs aren't as, as much of a concern as they were. So that's that's important. Um, but, you know, get a, get, a, get a pullback in your support, work off some of the real short term over kind of the, that overbought move we've got. Um, and then potentially you get another uh, an attempt to break above those moving averages, which if that's going to occur, will happen next week or the week after. We'll start, we'll get that push higher as we get further into earnings season. And then, of course, once we get through the end of the month, uh, we're going to hit uh, buyback season, which will begin uh, November the 1st. Okay, so there's a lot of, you know, um, potential tailwinds for this market coming ahead, right? You said, uh, you know, the seasonally strong uh, time of the year for markets and it's for the economy too, right? I mean, we have obviously the holidays coming up. You have mentioned on the past couple of videos that Halloween is a surprisingly big commerce day for the economy. Yeah. Um, so, you know, lots of consumer spending about to go on. Um, and uh, the buyback window opening back up, that's obviously going to be more more than likely than not supportive for stocks. Um, so, you know, it's, I'm, I'm glad that we've started this practice of bringing this chart up again and again, week after week, Lance, um, mm -hmm. because, you know, there, there have been periods along here where understandably, you know, the emotion either on the fear or the greed side, you know, has kicked in and, and you know, you as an experienced capital manager, you know, are urging caution. So back in what, July, you know, you were saying, look, we're, we're really overbought here, folks. I know everyone, you know, is, it, the, the markets are now parting like it's never going to end, but we're probably going to have a three to 10% pullback. That's pretty much exactly what we've gotten here. Um, and then as things were looking kind of darker and everybody was freaking out about the bear steepening in yields and how high yields were going on the long end of the curve just a couple of weeks ago, you know, you said, guys, look, I can jump on that macro train of all the concerns you have, but from a technical standpoint and otherwise, and the, the history of markets suggest we're oversold and this is likely going to bounce. That has been what has happened. Now, you don't have a crystal ball. You're not right all the time. Right. But uh, but what you want to be is, is that Warren Buffett quote. Uh, you you want to be, I'm not getting it exactly right, but you sort of like, you, you want to be approximately right rather than being precisely wrong. <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, and again, and again you know, we could come back down here and retest the 200-day moving average. Um, you know, that still doesn't change, you know, where we are. Um, and so, you know, what happens over the next three, four trading sessions? You know, you can have more of a sell-off here, absolutely. And, you know, and then you get set up. And again, this, you know, this market's going to just kind of work its way as we kind of go through this cycle. And again, the, the, Nove the, the strongest period of the October through May strong period is actually November, December, January. So the stronger months actually occur in November and December, get that year-end rally, the Santa Claus rally we always talk about. Uh, then of course, everybody comes back from the holidays and they want to position for the new year. So November, December, January tends to be really strong months. February tends to be a little bit weaker month. And then you get March, April, May. So, you know, you've got see, from a, a seasonal perspective and just, you know, kind of just traditional markets, 
you've got three of the strongest months coming up once we get through October. So again, you know, expect a little bit more sloppy trading for the next couple of weeks. So, you know, depends on how earnings season goes. Earnings are going to be good. We, we've lowered earnings from $224 a share to 180. So you had a 20% <laughs> decline in EPS estimates for this quarter. So you're getting an 80% beat rate, millennial earnings season, right? Everybody gets a trophy. And, you know, what will be important there is about forward guidance. So we hear a lot of stuff about, oh, my gosh, um, you know, we're about to have layoffs and, you know, the, the outlook is terrible. If, if that's the case, then, you know, we could see a very different market begin to shape up. So what really happens over the next couple of weeks in earnings is going to drive markets more than anything. OK, um, just a quick plug for our upcoming conference in a week. I'm super excited to hear from Michael Kantrowitz. Uh, with, with this hope framework, you know, a huge part of that story is going to be what what's going on in the employment sector. And we'll be diving deep into the employment data with Michael. As a reminder, the E in the hope framework is employment. Uh, and obviously, um, you know, earnings drive how much companies can afford to employ people. Uh, and that's that's actually the O in, um, sorry, that's the P in Michael's uh, hope framework uh, for profits, corporate profits. So we're going to get um, a really detailed update on both of those in Michael's uh, presentation there. Um, all right, so real quick back to this uh, chart, Lance, and then we're gonna move on to another topic related to it, which is, um, you know, there's that poem, um, that famous poem, If by Rudyard Kipling, yep. uh, which starts, if you can keep your head when all about you are losing theirs and blaming it on you. Um, I'm gonna come back to this poem later on at the end of our discussion today, um, but that really is your job, right? As a, as a client capital steward. Right, is it's your job to keep a clear, steady head, no matter what's going on, uh, to let the emotions of both the market and individual investors, you know, your clients' emotions. You're kind of supposed to be the bulwark, you know, against them to say, "Hey, yep, I know things are emotional right now, but we just got to try to remain level-headed and prudent and just look at the data." I think you've done a really good job of that this year for the the reasons I talked about, um, and you know. You take a lot of abuse for that, right? So back just a couple of weeks ago, when it looked like we were, you know, coming down to test the 200-day moving average, you know, there are a lot of people who I know were emailing you and saying, "Lance, you don't get it. This is it. This is the beginning of the end, right?" <laughs> and you had to just keep your head and, you know, be the steady hand on the tiller. And lo and behold, the price action has proved out to be what it is. Um, so I want to I want to commend you for that. Um, I do want to trundle in a second to a topic that people are still blaming you for today. <laughs> um, which is bond yields and the impact that that's having on bond prices. Real quickly, before we go there, can we just make a detour through inflation? Because we got the new inflation data out this week, which, you know, on, on a surface level, um, ah, maybe people might take as kind of good news um, because, uh, you know, the inflation rate basically stayed the same on a year over year basis, 3.7%. Um, it actually was hotter um, on a on a month over month basis. It came in at 0.4% uh, on a month to month growth rate in September. Um, so, you know, maybe maybe a little bit hotter than the Fed wants to see right now. Um, but I'm curious, what's your what's what your what's your takeaway of, of the importance of this? Uh, the CPI print, if any. No, it, it was absolutely a, a, a non-issue and the Fed's going to look right through this because uh, this is still uh, the majority of what we saw in the inflation report. And this is a chart of CPI on a monthly uh, annual percentage chain basis. Um, what we saw in the report was essentially just the lag effect. Remember, so when 
CPI is, is calculated, it's using uh, energy prices from three months ago. It's also using housing prices from three months ago. So when you take a look at rentals and you know what was going on with homeowners equivalent rent and oil prices three months ago, those were escalating higher. So the, the print you're seeing right now is going to cool off sharply over the course of the next couple of months, and, and particularly as we get further into the, to the winter. So, um, it, but if we just look out, at, and again, you know, this is such a critically important thing, and you and I touched on this last week, and again, everybody forgets this, the, 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 the Federal Reserve does not want deflation. They don't want zero inflation. They don't want negative inflation. So the price of gasoline, the price of used cars, the price of houses, they don't want those to go down. They're still going to be higher next year than they are now. They want them to be 2% higher a year from now than they are today. That is not deflation. So if you're expecting housing prices to go down, gas prices to go down, food prices to go down, you're not understanding what the Fed wants. The Fed wants inflation. They want 2% inflation, which means gasoline is not $4 a gallon. It's $4.08 a gallon next year. Mm -hmm. That's what they want. And so this whole idea that, oh, my gosh, you know, we're not getting you know 2% inflation right now and prices are still too high. Yeah, they're too high from the way we're used to having them but they're not going down anytime soon until we get into a recession, then those prices are going to drop pretty quickly. But that's, you know, a different story and that's a different topic that has nothing to do with, with the inflation print. So no, uh, inflation's running. Uh, you look at PPI, you look at CPI, you look at import export prices, it, it, they're, they're trending lower. And again, and if we just kind of run a projection out over the next, you know, 12 months, we're going to be pushing somewhere around 2.6% by the, this time next year, just assuming normal run rates. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, and you know, obviously, for folks looking at this chart, um, uh, the dotted red line uh, at the far right end of the chart is is sort of RAA's prediction of the the likeliest trajectory of where the CPI rate is going to head from here. Correct? Yeah. Well, this is something we started about six months ago. So the latest print is this little uptick right here that you see um, uh, on this. That we have this downtrend and this little pop up. That's the latest print. And so it's just basically following almost exactly to a T what we laid out almost a year ago. Okay, great. So the script is playing out as you have expected it to. Yeah. Um, okay. So, um, so now let's, let's trundle on over to bonds. So um, uh, bond yields have cooled off a little bit. And then of course, uh, and they came down a little bit after the, the, um, the weekend with the uh, geopolitical events in the Middle East. Um, but they've, you know, they've kind of ping ponged around a little bit this week. Uh, I, I love on the um, one of the comments there on that uh, Twitter feed that you just uh, closed where the guy said, Lance, dude, <laughs> was just watching your show. What the heck happened in bonds yesterday? <laughs> right. So yeah. I know you're getting bombarded with this um, real quick. Uh, I um, I just want to get your thoughts on the latest U.S. Uh, 30 year Treasury auction, which apparently was one of the poorest showings for an auction that we've had, you know, in a while. 
Um, and uh, at least there's a lot of, you know, kind of headlines going on about that, which is like, um, you know, all of a sudden, uh, you know, the Fed's trying to jawbone the dollar down. Uh, Janet Yellen's over in China. Um, folks feel like she's just asking, hey, you know, please buy our bonds. Uh, so, you know, there's sort of this narrative coming out right now that all of a sudden the folks at the top are beginning to get nervous about this this bear steepening in yields. Um, any any feedback on that latest auction and its, its level of importance? Uh, yeah, I was actually just looking over at Zero Hedge. They had a chart about this yesterday. It's it's this this falls into the realm of dumb and dumber um, for a lot of these comments that you just made. Um, for the most part, um, if I can find this chart, uh, just I'm, real, I'm sorry. Were my were mine the dumb comments or the dumber comments? No, you're, you're, no, you're you're relaying the 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 general premise of the market, and I can't find this one chart I was looking for. Um, Anyway, if you take a look at auctions, um, they look like a rubber band. Um, they're up and down, up and down, up and down. And, and so when you have a, a poor auction one week, you have a really great auction the next week. And, and so it just depends on what's going on in the market at any particular given time. And it has absolutely no relevance to what's going on. But let's talk about this whole idea, this thesis you just brought up, is that Janet Yellen's over the seas begging people to buy our bonds. That is a complete load of crap. Um, the reason is, is that, you know, people have been coming out lately going, oh, China doesn't want our bonds and Japan doesn't want our bonds. OK, so first of all, um, China owns $800 billion worth of our bonds. We have $33 trillion in debt. That's about two and a half percent of our total debt load is owned by China. If they dump all of our bonds, it would make no difference because they don't own enough of our bonds to matter. The Federal Reserve owns 8% of our bonds, right? They own $8 trillion worth. So they own a very big chunk of our bonds. So if the Fed starts stumping bonds, that's going to be a different issue. Japan owns a very small amount of our bonds as well. So they have no real big impact. But they're not, and, and yes, they've reduced their holdings some. Um, that has nothing to do with not wanting our bonds or anything else. It's about balancing currency and balancing trade. And uh, we've talked about this before. China sells... 50 billion, pick a number, $50 billion a year in stuff to the United States. If they took $50 billion worth of purchases from, that we make from China and then pulled it all back into their currency, their currency would be astronomically stronger than what the, the relative to the US dollar. That makes things on a trade basis unequal and not advantageous to China at that point. So China has a choice. When the dollar is too strong or the dollar is too weak, they can opt to sanitize trade. And they do that by storing those reserves created from transactions in U.S. treasuries. And this is why people store reserve currency in U.S. treasuries in, in, as a function of balancing trade and keeping some level of stability in currencies so they don't get too far out of whack. Yes. And that's a great point. I just want to explain for users here um, what you're saying, because it's really important, which is... Um, uh, because they don't want to absorb uh, the dollars that, that we're giving them for all the stuff that we buy from China into their economy and, and, and therefore cause their currency to shoot the moon, they've got a, a challenge, which is, well, what do I do with these dollars right? that I don't want to absorb? Well, I got to put them somewhere. Well, what's the biggest, safest market out there to store dollars in? It's U.S. treasuries, right? Um, so that's why so many countries park their money in U.S. treasuries. It's also when this whole concept of, um, oh, you know, something's going to replace the dollar as the world's reserve currency. 
one of the big challenges to a contender is you have to have a really big, deep, safe market to park stuff in, right? And most other currencies just don't have that. So I just mentioned this so that when people, you know, see all the very, you know, all the reasons why we could very validly get concerned over the long-term health of the U.S. dollar, you have to answer that question. And without a really good alternative, the dollar is probably not going to get toppled from its its reserve yeah. currency status anytime soon. And it's not Bitcoin. So now moving on, let me finish this up real quick because this there's there's more to this. So first of all, um, in our daily, so we run a daily market commentary on our website every day, and and we publish this out seven thirty sharp every morning. So if you subscribe to it, you're going to get this by email every morning. But the last two days, we've been covering this topic in particular. And uh, the first one was, what is going on here? Stop. I'll say, um, so again, this chart is incredibly important. So there's two things, there's a couple of things on this chart that, um, you, that you need to know. So here's, here's a couple of context about what's going on with the headlines, right? People don't want, you know, nobody wants our debt right now because we've got too much debt. 33 trillion. We've had a deficit for almost 40 years and it just became a problem last week. I mean, We've been running deficits since 1980. So now all of a sudden, deficits are a big problem. Our debt to GDP ratio, we're at 114% of debt to GDP. That's a problem now when it wasn't a problem at 100% of debt to GDP. It took us to get to 100. It wasn't a problem at 111. And now it's a problem at 114. Japan is 250% of debt to GDP and they're doing just fine. Why? Because Japan, the Central Bank of Japan owns 80% of the bond market. I'm not saying that's a good thing. I'm just saying that this whole notion that interest rates are going to go to the moon because nobody wants to buy the debt is a very false narrative because ultimately at the end of the day, the Federal Reserve will buy the debt. In fact, Janet Yellen just recently saying lower for longer, Michael Leibowitz just wrote an article about this on our website, and acknowledging the fact that we have to have low interest rates in order to sustain the growth of our debt, which is directly tied to the growth of our economy. But what these charts show a couple of things that really kind of bust that narrative in general. So first of all, the 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 the, the um, upper right hand quadrant is our total federal debt on a log scale. We're running below trend in terms of our debt issuance right now, uh, based on our long term trend of debt issuance. The bottom chart is our debt to GDP, which has been declining now, really ever since the pandemic. So in other words, our economy is actually going faster than our debt issuance. So that's actually a good thing. We want we want that to, to, to be the case. And, and so this is, and so this other idea that nobody wants to own our debt, everybody, you know, all, our for, all foreign governments are selling our debt, et cetera. Not really the case. Um, this is federal debt held by foreign investors and the, the upper trend line, yeah, it's, it's, it moves up and down over time. And again, we've had a very strong dollar lately. So that doesn't surprise us that, you know, we're seeing a little bit of a reserve sell-off here. Not, that's not a big issue. But again, the trend of debt ownership and is continuing to rise. So, you know, there's this whole narrative of, of other people not wanting our debt and all this. It's just not true. Again, to, to the very point you made, which is absolutely correct, you've got to have a currency where you've got a rule of law, you've got a very deep liquid market, you've got stability in the rules of how things operate, and you can count on the, the function of that debt being, uh, any debt that you have being made good on. And, you know, name another country that you can go to and have 
all those kind of variables put in place where you'd be willing to store your currency. Is it the Chinese yuan, uh, the Brazilian, uh, the, the Brazilian dollar? You know, what is it? There's just not, you know, Iran, Iraq. I mean, you know, pick pick a country. There's just not a lot of good choices out there where you've got that kind of stability and depth of market to store your to store your reserves. And so these narratives just don't hold any water and are, are not the issue of what's driving the market. If you want to know what's driving the market, it's the fact that we have a the, one of the largest short positions against bonds on ever. And that alone has been one of the key drivers for higher interest rates. There's momentum trade going on right now. You've got everybody piling onto this momentum trade of shorting bonds. That's driving yields up. And as you saw earlier this week, as soon as there's any type of, you know, uh, retracement in that narrative of wanting to be short bonds, you have very, very big moves uh, in yields very quickly. And that's that short covering process. So when you get into a trend of lower rates, that short covering is going to accelerate that downtrend when it occurs. Okay. Um, and look, I, you there's an article you wrote this week we're going to get to in a second called Bond Valuations Are Cheap. Yeah. Um, but you just you just made a statement that might be news to a lot of viewers, and it might be maybe a missing piece for a lot of them, where you just said the bond market is being shorted to an extent that we've rarely seen before. Right. right. Elaborate. Well, Why? Who's doing it? <laughs> the, the same people that short commodity futures or short oil prices. You know, how did we have negative oil prices in, in 2021? How could that happen, right? Did, did supply stop all i mean the demand for oil stop altogether no it's it's all driven by the commodity and the options markets the and on nymex where we trade futures and so right now you've got a huge chunk of what they call computerized trading algorithms and uh these kind of you know hedge fund driven portfolios that manage billions upon billions upon billions of dollars they are, you know, there's a trend, there's a negative trend in the momentum of the bond market. So they're piling on to that trend. So whenever there's a trend in one direction, they tend to exacerbate that trend, whether it's negative oil prices or rising yields, they're shorting bonds on a consistent basis to ride that momentum. And they're going to keep riding that momentum until that momentum changes direction. And when it does, then they're going to flip to being buyers. And so every time yields move, they're going to be buying more and more bonds, which are going to drive yields back towards zero. So this is how we get into these crisis related events in the in the markets, which is and, and more so over the last, you know, 10, 15 years in particular, because this is really the advent of computerized algorithms and all this other stuff that's going on. Um, these what these kind of uh, momentum bets that are being done is what's creating this bigger volatility in markets and, and why you see stocks fall 90 percent um you know why you talk why you why you see uh these exacerbated moves in commodity markets that don't really make sense relative to the fundamentals but it is what it is because you've got huge groups of people with lots of money and control driving these prices in one direction or the other okay so do we when you you use your analogy there about oversold and overbought, right, is the elastic band that's getting further and further stretched. Um, do you see the bond market at a point right now where bond prices have been oversold to the point where that how stretched is that rubber band under these current conditions? Um, about it's it's about it's so on a longer term basis. It's rarely been this over this this overdone. Okay. So, 
you know, you're, it doesn't, that doesn't mean it's going to, and then this is why, you know, we talked about before when I'm buying bonds in my portfolio, personally, I keep telling you it's 18 to 36 months. It's 18 to 36 months. You know, it's a longer term time frame, but you have barely, rarely seen in history where you have the bond market for standard deviations above long-term monthly moving averages. That just doesn't happen. Okay. So would you put this on a comparable basis with what you just mentioned with oil back during the pandemic when it got to negative prices briefly for a moment. That was a, that was a very oversold moment for oil. Yeah. Are we sort of at a similar level of oversoldness here? Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is, this is equivalent to negative oil prices. This is equivalent to stocks in 2009, you know, March of 2009. Um, and it's always interesting, psychology is exactly the same, right? March of 2009, I couldn't have got you to buy stocks to save my life, but that was the time to buy stocks, right? So, you know, this and, and now it's the same thing. Nobody wants to own bonds. Everybody's coming up with all these theses why nobody wants to own bonds. That tells you it's probably about the time to start buying bonds. Just, just because all of these theses and analysis and all this stuff, it'll change. And when something occurs, some type of recession, crisis event, whatever it is. And, and again, there's no telling when that'll be. Timing is always the issue. But when you get the reversal of that momentum in the markets, it'll reverse strongly. Okay. So maybe we can go to your article and you can pull up any charts from that that you want to in answering this question. But one of the reasons why I'm putting my finger so directly on this is I think what I hear you saying is, look, in my career as a portfolio manager, as a, as a steward of client capital, um, I'm seeing one of those rare moments in time where you know you don't always get a bright light shined on something that says this thing is really underpriced right now uh, from a historic basis. Um, it sounds like you were saying to me that this that's happening with bonds. Would, would you say that like this is one of the best time to buy bonds, if not the best time to buy bonds that you've seen in your career as a portfolio manager? Well, that's why I'm I, you know that's why I'm buying bonds personally. Um, and so that's I, a yes. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I'm just telling you what I'm doing and you can take from that what you will. I'll tell you this on February 14th, 2008, I wrote an article uh, at that time and published it um, called eight reasons for a bull market. And uh, of course, in February 14th of 2009, the market's down 20% from the peak in January. Um, not to mention the previous, you know, 30%, 40% down from the previous year. Um, and of course, the bot at that point, everybody was like, are you crazy? This market's going to zero. Who wants to own stocks here? It was the end of the world as we knew it. And then, of course, March the 9th was the bottom you know, of the market. So, again, you very rarely get these opportunities where the world is so convinced that something is dead. Uh, you know, I'll give you a couple of good examples. You and I were on this show right in 2020, November 2021. I said right here on the show with you that you know, going into 2022 is going to be a great opportunity to own energy stocks because mm -hmm. everybody hated them. ESG was dead and, and oil was dead. And nobody wanted it because of ESG. And I was like, you very rarely get this type of opportunity to own energy stocks. And then on uh, November the 4th of 2022, just last year, wrote an article, are FANG stocks dead? You right. know, everybody hated FANG stocks. And those have been the best performer this year. So again, whenever you have these very negative biases on an asset class, when there's blood in the street, as Baron de Rothschild once said, that's when you want to start looking at this stuff. It's painful. It's terrible to try to own this stuff. It's no fun to try to own it. But that's, look, you don't get buying opportunities when everybody's piling onto an asset, right? <laughs> if everybody's buying it, there's no opportunity to make money with it. 
right? You may make money over a month or two, but you're not going to make long-term real money with it. You got to buy stuff when nobody wants it. So is this the blood in the streets moment for bonds? Oh, yeah, it's been that way. It's been that way for a year. You, you've never had three negative years. Since 1787, you've never had three negative years in a row for bonds. And this will be this will be the third year if it happens. Okay. Um, I was going there with this question. Um, how likely do you think it is that we have a fourth year? Anything, anything, anything is possible. Anything's possible. I know that. Anything is possible. I'd I'd suggest, highly suggest that it's not going to be the case. Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah. I mean, it, it, didn't even, it didn't it didn't even happen in the 70s. You you never even had three years in a row during the 70s inflation spike. You didn't have three years in a row of negative bond returns. So right, right. And I've asked this of you, and I think a couple people recently, but I just wanted to do it again, given your 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 very good diatribe here. Yeah. Um, the fact that we were having a third year this year is historically unprecedented, right? It never happened, you know, since they started keeping records in the late 1700s, right? Um, now we're at a point where, you know, the odds of a fourth, you know, it's sort of like flipping a coin, right? The, yeah. the further and further you go out getting all the same, the probability, yes, on any individual flip, it's it's a 50-50 probability, but the series probably the probability of it happening in series gets incredibly less the further you go along. So, all right. So, Lance, thanks for thanks for helping me shine this bright light on here for viewers, which is, you know, you're basically waving a flag now saying, folks, we have a historically attractive moment in time here. You've shared that you're, you know, putting your money where your mouth is, not just on, on the accounts you're managing for your clients, but that personally you're being even more aggressive uh, in this asset class going forward. You think I'm um, being you think I'm being aggressive. You can ask Mike Leibowitz when you when he speaks at your conference, but he's buying call options on bonds. So he's even more aggressive than I am. Because he's, he's putting a timestamp on his. I'm not. I'm I can wait 18, 36 months. His call options expire. <laughs> thank you for, for reminding folks that. And folks, yes, Michael will be speaking at our conference in a week. Um, he will also not just be uh, giving a presentation, but he'll he's making himself available for live Q&A. So if you have specific questions about the bond market, show up at the conference and ask him them directly. Um, all right, Lance, um, anything else to say about bonds before we move on from that? I mean, it's it's yeah. um, I, I guess one question is, is, is it, 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 sort of like the rubber band uh, analogy. Is it the kind of thing that when it starts reversing, it's highly likely to reverse pretty quickly because you're going to have the whole short covering aspect to it? Yeah. You know, this is one of those things like, you, you know, go, well, you know, there's like a lot of people that are going, well, I'm just in cash right now and I'll buy bonds when they start to improve. The problem with that is, is by the time that you recognize the improvement, you'll have already missed 40% of the move. So, you know, you'll miss the biggest chunk of the move because it's going to happen very, very quickly when it occurs. And particularly if the Fed starts cutting rates, it'll happen very fast. Okay. So the point being is this is one of those things that to, to capture, you know, a material chunk of, of the appreciation, you're going to have to be in the position when that happens, right? Um, and so, well, I, we're going to get to your trades in just a moment, but um, I, I assume, well, I assume you'd think that this is a time for people, especially if you haven't been in the bond trade yet, to start dollar cost averaging in, right? Where you're using you know, the current low prices as a good you know, entry point. And yeah, it might take another 12 to 36 months, like you said, right? So don't necessarily expect it to go to the moon tomorrow, but you're increasing your exposure and then you're 
as time goes on, you're getting closer to that that turnaround date whenever it finally manifests. Yeah. And, and again, it's just, you know, the, and, and, you know, you, you said, you know, I'm like, I'm shining a light on this. It's like, no, I, I've been talking about this for the last six months. Right. So well, I know you've been talking about, I just want to make sure the audience yeah. is really yeah. perking up their ears. This yeah. isn't like, you know, I just, Oh, today I just woke up and did this. No, this is a, you know, this conversation that we've been having for, for months now is that, you know, the undervaluation in bonds relative to stocks makes them extremely attractive versus stocks and particularly, you know, rising interest rates are not great for for stock valuations. So when the Fed starts cutting rates and interest rates start to fall, valuations are going to be falling along with them because earnings will be declining. So there's there's a, you know there that rotational shift from equities into fixed income is also going to be a big driver of that gain in price. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. All right. And I'm going to ask you to just speculate here. In terms of the level of overvaluation, kind of like what are you playing for? And maybe we'll we'll say this with your personal holdings, so it you know it, it's not necessarily you know not, not not holding you to something that your clients might hold you to, but right. like uh, you know tenure right now in the high four percentiles. Like, what are you kind of playing for? Like like a two percent handle on the the tenure, a three percent. If you if you have a if you have a recession, you'll be one percent ish. Don't forget, we got to point three um, on the ten year in twenty twenty. Okay, so what what rough math in your head? What kind of percentage price appreciation do you, would you expect to have in in bond yields under those type of scenarios? You should get anywhere from thirty to fifty percent. Okay. So basically you're getting you're setting yourself up for a 30 to 50% gain in price while getting paid in the high 4 percentiles, you know, along the way. Yeah. Yeah. I mean and you've got the 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 safety of the US government, you know, the the backer of the principal of of those uh those bonds. So from a risk return standpoint, yeah. I mean that's pretty freaking hard to beat right now. Yeah, and again now, again, you know, it's going to be different if you run out and buy a, you know, 10-year bond today at par value and then yields fall tomorrow, that bond's going to go up in price. But your greater appreciation is going to come from buying deeply discounted bonds that were issued at much lower coupons. Because remember, it's always price and yield are the same thing. So, you know, people go, well, what should I, you know, there's a, there's a bond out here that's currently got a coupon of three and a half. Uh, or I can buy this four and a half percent coupon. You know, it's the same thing. It doesn't matter which one you buy. They're both going to yield four and a half because yields are always the same. It's the price that varies. So my greater appreciation is I can find, you know, a 10 year bond that's issued uh, that that has a, a much lower coupon. I'm going to have a big depression in price. So when that bond matures at par value, I'm going to have a bigger price appreciation on that return to par. All right. That's really interesting. I'm glad you brought that up. And I hope folks are, are realizing this, where most people who are not super experienced bond investors would just look at the coupons. Yeah. Right. I get this. Say, I get oh, this. higher coupon, better. 
But you're yeah. really saying, look at the yields. Yeah, because the yield is what matters at the end of the day. The, the coupon doesn't matter. It's always the yield to maturity. So if I'm because because government bonds always going to mature at face value. So government's always so just to, just in theory, right? If I could find a ten year treasury that was trading at fifty cents, you're not going to do this, by the way. I'm just making. I need easy math. But if I found a ten year treasury that had a that was trading at fifty cents on the dollar. And I buy it at 50 cents on the dollar, it's going to mature at 100 cents on the dollar. The government, when it matures, it's going to yield 100 cents on the dollar. So I'm going to get that appreciation. But this is why yield is what matters. If I look at that bond, it's going to have exactly the same yield as a new issue coupon bond because the yields are always the same. Why? If Adam has a, a bond with a 3% coupon, and I have a bond that I, and I'm issuing a bond at 5%, why would anybody want to buy Adam's bond, right? It's a 3% coupon. So the only way to make that bond attractive to a buyer is he's got to discount the price so that ultimately when that bond matures at face value plus that 3% coupon, it's exactly the same yield as my 5% coupon today. So never buy a bond for the coupon. It's always about yield to maturity. Okay, um, so it, basically bond market hyper-efficient, right? So it's doing the real-time pricing for you as everybody bids for this stuff, right? Whatever the coupon is, it's getting the yields to equilibrate. Again, just in case folks didn't get it, why do you expect the the, the bond that, that sells at a lower price because it has a lower coupon to appreciate more than, say, a, a brand new bond issued today if the future plays out the way you think it's going to? Well, we're talking about percentages. Right, so we're talking about percentage gain. Percentage so, gain, exactly. Yeah. So if if I have a bond, so what's a bigger percentage move? If I so let's say I have a a, a bond that I issue out at a hundred cents on the dollar, and when yields fall, it's going to trade at a premium. Now it's going to go from a hundred to one hundred and ten, right? Because as it, as the price moves up, the yield comes down again. It's always matching yield to the market. Yep. So if I can find a bond that's trading at you know, 80 cents on the dollar. And I'm just, I'm, I'm just throwing out math, right? But all it goes 100 because now everybody wants that, that, that bond as prices are falling, it's going to gain 20%. So there's going to be some potential arbitrage in the market. And look, the bond market's going to flesh out arbitrage really fast. And this is why, you know, we were talking about a minute ago, you've got to be positioned before this happens because the, any arbitrages that exist in the bond market are going to go away immediately um, because everybody's going to figure this out very fast. But you know, again, this is why, you know, if you're buying, and none of this matters if you're buying TLT or you're buying EDV, whatever, this conversation has nothing to do with you because it's the price is going to move with the, with the appreciation and bond prices. But there are, um, there are bonds out there in the markets that are marked much lower than probably where they should be. And so there's some potential arbitrage there that, you know, if you're able to find the bonds and able to, 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 to acquire them, you're going to make a better return potentially than buying a new issue coupon. My, my point of the conversation is, is that I'm getting a lot of emails saying, I want to sell my old bond that has a 4% coupon to buy this new one that has a 4 and 5 eighths coupon it doesn't matter. The yield is exactly the same. So all you're doing is selling one bond at a loss to buy another bond with the higher coupon. And it's fine. 
if that makes you feel better. But it's all about yield at the end of the day. And just selling a bond that's down in price is, is not going to matter because at the end of the day, when, uh, when everything goes to equal, the yield is going to be exactly the same. Okay. Price appreciation and coupon versus just coupon. Okay, got it. So I, I guess I'll just sort of summarize as a takeaway for folks listening here is um, <clears throat> great time to buy bonds. <laughs> um, there's real opportunity within bonds uh, to to um, create better gains than um, just buying the latest bond that's being sold in the most recent auction. Um, but it's a little mathy. You need to have experience doing it. If you just want to ride the general trend, use the ETFs. You just mentioned, you know, the names of a couple of them, like TLT. Um, but if you want to explore something a little bit more sophisticated than that, and you don't have a ton of experience trading bonds yourself, which from the feedback I'm getting from folks, the vast majority of people, you know, work under the partnership and guidance of a experienced professional financial advisor who, you know, understands these instruments and can give you advice on that. Yeah. And, and look, just real quick, look, you know, we kind of went all around the circle there, but there's there's a lot of moving when you're building a bond portfolio. And look, I'm not a bond expert. That's not my bailiwick. That's Mike's bailiwick. That's what he does for us. Um, but there, this is what Mike and I are doing all the time is that we're looking for situations that are unfairly priced relative to where they should be in the market, whether it's mortgage-backed securities or closed-in funds trading below par value. There's a lot of opportunities where things get mispriced and there's you can take advantage of that, but those those mispricings won't last long because the market will figure that out when things start to move and then they'll price them fairly. So that's that's my point of the conversation, which is, you know, again, going back, don't get caught up in the coupon. That has nothing to do with anything. It's only yield that matters. And ultimately what we're playing for here is for the Fed to cut rates, have a recession. Yields come down, prices go up. That's your opportunity. Okay, awesome. All right, um, moving on from uh, from bonds and great discussion there, Lance. Thanks for going deep with us on that. Um, I I, I, I kind of had to chuckle a little bit today, um, reading some of the latest headlines about um, FTX. Right, this is <laughs> Sam Bankman Fried's uh, crypto exchange. It kind of fell out of the headlines for a long time. Um, I, I, it was, I was interested in watching the 60 minutes the other week where they interviewed Michael Lewis, yeah. right? Probably the greatest, um, financial, um, what do you want to call him? Uh, you know, storyteller, forensic journalist. Um, you know, he's, he's written just iconic books about some of the, the greatest successes of wall street. Um, and, uh, as fate would have it, he was embedded with Sam Bankman fried uh, all through this whole process. So he was writing a book about the whole, you know, FTX sort of miracle, and then was there watching it once the news came out and the whole thing started to fall apart, right? So you've got probably the the best man for the job, you know, there with a front row seat during the whole thing. And what's kind of interesting is, you know, he, he, um, he, he's basically saying like, he doesn't think that he, he, he said, I don't think Sam Bankman fried truly, really believes he did anything wrong, you know, in, in this story. It, it wasn't like a mustache twirling guy who was trying to defraud investors and run a true Ponzi scheme. But what's interesting is what's coming out now is uh, one of Sam Bankman frieds top lieutenants, his former girlfriend, Caroline Ellison, who ran Alameda Research, which was basically the entity that they were, they're going to get in a lot of trouble for. 
um, she's basically admitting she's kind of turned state's evidence and said, oh, my God, you know, I was being forced to write, uh, you know, create balance sheets to reflect that we were doing things, uh, you know, we were much better off than we were. And, you know, Sam was siphoning off client funds to do things he shouldn't have been doing. So it actually does look like criminal, real criminal activity was going on. And it just sort of shows that, like, you know, just it's just more of the same. Right. Like this is the, the, it's truly these these stories that are too good to be true. They they generally always end up playing out the same that, yep, it was it was overhyped and it was um, unsustainable, oftentimes ill gotten criminal activity at, at the core of it. And FTX at this point seems like it probably was no different. Well, and, and again, you know, we but we've seen this going, you know, all the way back to Mount Go, um, you know, that, you know, money disappears. Uh, we saw, you know, you know, with Binance and, and a lot of others. So, you know, it's. You know, this whole look, I get it right. Cryptocurrency, it's it's a it's, it's a it's a cool thing. We're all going to move to a digital currency at some point. That's just a function of time. We're, we're there now. I mean, for the most part, I can't remember the last time I actually pulled cash out of my wallet. So, you know, we're all definitely headed in that direction. But as I've said before, it's going to require ultimately a lot of, of regulation. And it's not going to be this kind of free for all Wild West thing. That you know, there's complete anonymity and 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 all that because no government is going to allow that to occur because the flow of currency is very important not only to economic stability but also to national security. Got to know where the money's going. Are funding terrorist organizations or whatever? So, you know, there's eventually going to be a cryptocurrency. The government's going to highly regulate it. Every every government's going to regulate their own their own uh, currency at some point. Will definitely be there. Um, what the ultimate future for Bitcoin is and Ethereum, I own some as, as just full disclosure. I don't know. Um, you know, I've, I've owned the, you know, the currencies for, you know, three, four years now. I started out as an experiment and uh, just to learn more about them. And, and again, just uh, I still hold them now, just kind of watching the, the ebbs and the flows. But I don't really see what the future is going to be. There's not there's not to date really any viable, you know, use for these things other than, you know, potential one-off transactions where I can maybe buy, you know, something with Bitcoin. But, you know, Tesla tried it. They abandoned that very quickly because of the volatility. You know, I can't have a current, if I'm going to have a currency, I can't have a currency that's moving 10 or 20% a day. That's just not viable for business. It's got to be stable. That's the one beautiful thing about the dollar. Yeah, it may be fiat, but it's stable, right? You know, I, I can make a transaction. I can pretty much count on the value of whatever that dollar is that I'm that I'm receiving for my goods or services that I'm providing. So eventually, someday, this is going to have to be more organized and more stable. And whether it's a central bank digital currency or whatever it is, it will be regulated. Um, these issuances. Um, will be regulated, and, and again, doesn't mean there won't be other current you know, other coins that are issued, but they are going to fall deeply within the securities and exchange rules and regulations for issuing securities, and because that's the way they will ultimately be treated. Is is oh great, you want to issue a, a, a coin? That's awesome. It's a security. It's just like going IPO with a with a with a company stock. So you have to meet all the requirements, and again, that's to help eliminate fraud and people losing millions and millions of dollars, which is always terrible when it happens. But I do find it interesting. You know, it's it's always at the end of the day, Adam, the woman scorned. Um, she is definitely having her day in court. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. 
and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Oh, man, Lance, you know you're going to get us in trouble with both the crypto fans and uh, the, the ladies uh, watching this channel. Well, look, look, I, look I, I'm not trying to offend crypto fans. Again, I own them, right? I'm just, I'm just saying from my personal perspective, I have not seen a valid use yet for the cryptocurrency that I own. And maybe there, maybe there, remember, because we remember when cryptocurrency was first gaining, this was supposed to take the place of all real estate transactions. We were, you know, crypto was going to take the banks out of the middle. We're going to do, you know, peer-to-peer -peer transactions and all this stuff real time. It's yet to occur. Not saying that it won't, right? It just hasn't yet. And, you know, it's been over a decade now. So we'll see. We'll see. I, again, I'm not, I'm not poo-pooing cryptocurrency at all. Again, I own some, um, you know, but, you know, I just, I think there's a, I think we've got a lot further to go than what a lot of people think before we get to some end use of whatever cryptocurrency is going to eventually become. Yeah. And it's kind of interesting, you know, Bitcoin is, has been hanging in at the sort of 26, 20,000 range for a good while right now. I mean, its volatility really has kind of gone down. Um, and uh, I've just been interested, is it, is it, is it stabilizing? And is that sort of a, a show of, of, of strength and, and it may power higher from here because for whatever reasons, um, you know, or is this just, you know, sort of uh, the, the the coyote is still just hanging out in midair, you know, and gravity's taking a while to kick in. Who, who knows? Um, and I, I I don't want to make this a, a cryptocurrency uh, video just because I'm not, totally not, not prepared to have that discussion right now. Well, and that's not my expertise. That's not <laughs> no, and it's not either. But, but where I'm going with this is is actually I've, I've seen an increase. Um, you know, I always get a couple a week, but I've seen an in increase over I'd say the past month of viewers saying, hey, you know, Adam, bring somebody from crypto on, from, you know, crypto, or at least Bitcoin on. Um, and, and, you know, l l let's hear the latest sort of fair argument for, you know, why it's got a big future ahead of it. Um, folks, if that would be of enough interest to enough of you, let me know in the comment section below. And if there is enough, um, I will, I, I will your, your wish will be my command. I'll go out, I'll try to find one of the most prominent uh, Bitcoin or crypto specialists will try to keep it as as uh, agnostic as possible um, and hear what they have to say. Um, all right. So I, I, the only the only bow I want to put on this part of the conversation is that no, no matter how potentially perfect the underlying asset that you are working with, um, fraud is a human story as old as time. And it looks like this time was was no different. You know, the the, the yeah. miracle that was happening at FTX uh, that uh, nobody could fully explain, but everybody wanted to be on board. At the end of the day, it does look like it was had its roots in just pure old fraud. Well, and just remember, you can't have fraud without greed. And at the end of the day, this is all about greed. Um, and and maybe maybe he maybe his uh, simple jack argument will will prevail in court. We'll see. It certainly doesn't look that way right now. Um, but I'm not sure the I was too stupid to know better is, is going to play. Right. But, especially especially yeah. after Caroline, I guess, mentioned the words Thai prostitutes. Uh, <laughs> whenever that comes up, you know, in the deposition, it's not good. Uh, yeah. And apparently what she was talking about is, is they, they, they look like they paid a lot of client funds as basically a bribe to 
foreign nationals, uh, which highly likely was players in the Chinese government and, and potentially a group made up of what might have been sort of I don't know how Chinese prostitutes came in, in in the mix, whether it was a ring that that ran a bunch of Chinese prostitutes. I don't know if there's the, the Thai prostitutes themselves, but it's just not looking good. We'll put it that no, way. No, but again, it, like I said, at the end of the day, it's all about greed. And, and look, you're never going to extract greed from the financial markets and you're never going to extract greed when you have, you know, an ability to just issue something without any real rules or regulations. And, you know, so, you know, this is this is always the issue that we talk about when you're thinking about doing any type of private investment, any type of unregulated investment of any sort. You've got to to do multiple levels of your due diligence because this is how people get scammed all the time. You know, uh, you know, from a, a variety of deals. But crypto was super easy because there wasn't, there's not anything really out there to stop or to formulate the creation, right? It's not a, it's not a, a, you know, cryptocurrency doesn't have a goal backing to it. It's not, doesn't have a, an asset behind it. In a lot of cases, it's just somebody's idea and some code. And that's very easy to replicate when you have so much demand for it and everybody's wanting to go out and get, you know, whatever the latest one was, it was very easy to, to create a, a fraudulent environment for that and sell something that, that may have had no value and no real intent at all. And we saw, and it wasn't just FTX. Again, we saw several of these where money just evaporated and people went on the lam and nobody ever heard from them again. So, but that's that's why you've always got to be really careful when you're making investments. And one of the reasons that, you know, buying things that are highly regulated like stocks, like um, bonds, you know, like commodities, uh, which are highly regulated, you know, those at least you know there's oversight over those assets, which helps and doesn't solve it. Obviously, you have you had Alan Stanford and and Bernie Madoff. It doesn't keep you from having fraud. It doesn't keep you from being defrauded, but it certainly helps minimize the risk somewhat because you own that asset in your account. It's held in your name, you know, at Fidelity at Schwab. You can see it on your statement. There's a value attached to it every day that really reduces the risk of you winding up in some type of fraudulent transaction and, and losing all your life savings. Right. Well, and, and also the the financial reporting that's required by regulations, um, which is a total nightmare if you run a public company, but it's there for a reason, right? And okay. you got to be very careful in the private markets. We've talked a little bit about this in the past, Lance, not a lot, but a little. And just again, here in the, um, the FTX example, um, Caroline Ellison was saying that Sam Bankman-Fried demanded that she create seven different versions of the balance sheet so that he could pick the one that he wanted to show investors, right? right. You know, can't really do that with a public company. It's not that they can't still monkey stuff around, but their ability to do so is much less limited than like, hey, let's just make up some numbers and show a piece of paper to our investors. And that's all we're going to give them for the year, right? Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. All right. So um, we're beginning to get tight on time. So I'm going to start winding down. Um, I want to put up one chart here, if I can, uh, just to, to note, you know, we talk a lot about where the economy is going and the fact that we have a big consumer driven economy. So as so goes the consumer, so goes the economy, at least in theory. Um, we are seeing consumer spending um, really beginning to look quite weak. So um, this is the percent change in consumer spending. I think it's percent year over year change, if I'm not mistaken. I don't think it's monthly. 
Um, but but basically, you can see 2023 really starting in October of last year. So it's basically been a year of uh, negative growth. And uh, we have now in the past month, we have exceeded the worst monthly growth uh, or worst, worst monthly negative growth uh, month that we experienced during COVID, which was April of 2020. So to me, Lance, I mean, this this catches my attention. This is definitely like a, a strong blinking light on the dashboard of the economy. I'm curious to get your reaction to this. No, it's 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 what you would expect. Um, if you look at 2021, you had 34%, 22%, 16%, 10%. So not surprising that as the money's been running out and now that you're restarting student loan payments, that you're starting to get a reversal of that spending. And again, but you're reversing that spending from very, very high levels. And we're working our way back towards a normal trend of spending. So it's important to extract the number that you're looking at. It's like, oh my gosh, we're down 10%. Yeah, it's a big number, but don't forget that we were up 10.8, you know, 9.8% in 2021 and another 1% 2022% for the for the same month in September. So, you know, yeah, we're reversing and, and 13% in 2020. So yeah, we're reversing some of that spending that we had previously, you know, as savings run out, as the, the student loan payments restart. And that's going to help, that's going to, that's going to do two things. It's going to slow the economic growth and it's going to pull inflation down. Right. And just to, just to use your analogy on this, um, the, the direction is important, right? Like uh, let's say your change in altitude is a thousand feet, right? Um, that's important, but it's much less of an issue if you're starting from 30,000 feet and going down a thousand feet. It's a much bigger deal that if you started at 900 feet and then you've gone down a thousand feet, <laughs> you know, yeah. that's where you have impact, right? So it really matters where you are in the story. But you know, when we're looking at trends, when we're looking at direction and momentum, this is showing that the consumer is weakening. Yes. And it's exactly as you should expect. And that underlines that narrative of potentially, you know, softer profit growth, softer earnings as we go into next year. Okay. Um, uh, as we as we wrap things up here, um, I just want to uh, I want to go back to that. Uh, we're going to get to your trades in just a second, Lance. Um, but uh, well, actually, why don't we get to your trades now? We'll get to your trades now, and then I'm, I'm going to do a little personal opining. So, what trades have you guys made over the past week? Uh, the only, we only did two things this week. One, um, we had a uh, we've owned Costco for a long time, and um, we had uh, had grown into a pretty significant position in the portfolio. So we we trimmed that back a little bit. Uh, part of that has been on the underperformance of Staples as of late because of this news on the Zempic, which you know we're having a bit of an AI moment with these fat with these uh, weight loss drugs. It's like oh my gosh, everybody's going to take these weight loss drugs and everybody's going to lose weight. Nobody's going to eat junk food anymore, and everybody's going to get new clothes. So we we've seen a bit of a contraction in staple stocks. Um, that's pretty much a that's that's going to be a, a fairly false um, analysis going forward. Um, these drugs do make you want to eat less, but it doesn't make you want to eat better. So you don't stop eating junk food. You just go to McDonald's, you order your quarter pounder with cheese or whatever. And instead of eating the whole thing and a complete, a complete order of fries, you eat three bites and you're full and you don't want it anymore. So, but you're still spending the same amount of money on junk food. So, um, you know, the, the narrative will work itself out over time. Plus there's some really bad side effects from, from these drugs that will have to be worked out over time. And again, if you're not prescribed a drug, it's a thousand dollars out of pocket. And there's not a lot of people that are going to do that. So this this kind of narrative that everybody's going to get on the drug is probably not valid. 
Um, but so again, we, we did trim back our staples just a little bit. We were overweight staples in our portfolio anyway, trim that back. And then um, we had sold ExxonMobil a couple of months ago. Uh, and that didn't sell at all. We just had taken some profits out of it because- You did your gardening been, that you talk about. Yep. Yeah, we did our gardening. And so whatever, uh, Tuesday or Wednesday of this week, we um, took that into an overweight position uh, after uh, the day they actually announced their acquisition of Pioneer Resources. Uh, the stock took about a 5% hit and we uh, overweighted our position at ExxonMobil because we like the company long-term and the acquisition of the shell driller uh, really expands their- their whole kind of base production model. So it, it's, it looks really good going forward. Okay. Um, and just FYI folks, again, to mention the conference, uh, Rick Rule uh, just interviewed, uh, recorded his presentation uh, as he did last time. Um, he just leaves it all in the playing field, just shares dozens of companies and, and uh, tickers of the, the companies that are on his personal watch list or in his personal portfolio. Um, he gave a bunch in energy and he gave a bunch of names that probably most people, you know, we don't hear every day. Um, but he did say that uh, ExxonMobil was was at the top of his list for those that want to, you know, invest in quality. And he said that um, uh, they are probably the only oil major that is um, investing in CapEx enough to maintain their current levels of production. Um, so just FYI, you know, if there's sort of a gold standard in the space, I think, I think Rick would say it's definitely Exxon. So if you think yeah. it's a good time to buy them, Lance, it's probably saying something. Yeah. Um, okay. Um, because you brought up Ozempic, I just got to ask you this. So you and I were, we're big health and fitness guys, right? I'm just yeah. curious, what do, what do you think about this Ozempic trend? Um, you know, part of me, Part of me wants to resist it a bit, like, ah, you know, it, it, it's the easy button and the easy button is never really, it it, 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 it addresses the symptoms, but it, it's not really curative, right? Um, is this mostly that, or at the same time, like, are we just happy that it, it, it's better than not doing it, right? Is it better to be morbidly obese and not take it? Or is it better to lose the weight and get some of the health benefits from being, you know, less overweight? but you're not necessarily, you know, it comes with side effects. And that, again, it's maybe not necessarily still curing you of, of the core unhealthiness of your lifestyle. What do you think? So, uh, so just, I have personal experience with this. Um, so my wife um, is going through menopause um, and I hope hopefully she will never see this video that I'm making with you right now. Kill you for sharing all this personal <laughs> yeah. detail. Yeah, This will be my last video if she finds out. Uh, but look, my wife's in her her late forties. Um, she's beautiful, um, but you know, and you know, when you go through menopause, your body changes a lot, and um, losing weight and trying to keep weight off becomes very difficult. A lot harder at, at, at that age, and especially when you're going through that hormonal change within within females. Guys go through it too. Um, you know, we have a big drop in testosterone and that's why you see all these centers out now, you know, come in and get your testosterone shot, right? Boost your testosterone, lose weight. So, but as men age as well, you know, we, you know, our hormones and our testosterone fall and it becomes very difficult for us to lose weight as well. So, so this Ozempic um, and the related drugs all work off of uh, what's called the semaglutide, which is, is basically this, this chemical that makes you not want to eat uh, effectively. And, and, and so it's, uh, it's almost like a forced diet to, to, for lack of a better term. And 
so part of my wife's regimen that, so she's going through hormone balancing right now. And we, we work with a very specialized doctor, both I and her, uh, to balance our hormones and, and, you know, get us, you know, keep our health standards as high as possible. Of course, you know, having said that, as you know, and as we talked about here on, on the, the show, we combine that hormone balancing. It's not, that's just not all we do. We be, we very, very healthy. We exercise every day. Um, so we have a very, uh, a very rigid program that both she and I are on, but I can tell you that this semaglutide issue and no matter what kind of version you go, it just makes you not want to eat. In fact, the, the sound of food in a lot of cases just makes you kind of ill. It's like, I just, you know, she goes to this. She's like, I, I would love to eat. Um, but I just, when I look at food, I'm just like, I don't want it. And so that restriction and that caloric intake, you're starving yourself for lack of a better term. And it forces your body to, to start consuming itself. And so the issue that you have from a health factor is, is that yes, you're going to lose weight, but you're not going to be healthy. The, the, you know, yes, if you're diabetic, you're going to lose weight and that may help with the diabetic syndrome, but it doesn't force you to eat a healthier diet. It doesn't force you to go out and start exercising and, and doing all the other things that are necessary to be healthy and to conquer that disease long-term. And you can't take this drug for the rest of your life. You can only do it for a very set period of time. And then you've got to come off of it uh, because it's not good for you. <laughs> the side effects are not great. So, you know, you know, this, again, you know, everybody's jumping on this, this kind of weight loss miracle as the new AI trend for stocks. And, you know, it, it, it's going to have an impact, I will tell you. And, and these drug companies are going to make a crap ton of money off of this. And they're going to be sued down the road out the wazoo because of all the side effects. But the drug companies don't care about this. They're, they're going to make billions of dollars and they'll settle this thing for a couple of billion down the road. And you know, it'll be fine. They'll, you know, they'll be very profitable from this, but this isn't the cure-all. This is, this is the easy pill to try to lose weight. But, uh, you know, we were having this conversation this morning. I have friends of mine that are very overweight and they're perfectly happy being overweight. They're, they, they like going out and drinking what they drink and eating what they eat. And they don't care that they're overweight. I mean, they're, they're very happy and content. They're not going to get on these drugs ever right? And, until somebody forces them to. So, you know, I, I'm not sure this turns out to be the the, the, the massive gold rush that people are, are building into companies right now that are producing these drugs. It is going to be beneficial. They are going to make money off this. But, you know, I, I think this runs its course kind of fairly quickly over the next, the next two or three years. All right. Um, I actually got a ton of questions. I'd love to keep talking with you about this, but we are super tight on time. Yep. So we're, we're going to have to pick them up next time. Um, Lance, I know you got to hop because you've got a, a video, uh, another interview to do, I think now. So yep. um, I'll say goodbye to you and then I'll just uh, I'll, I'll walk folks out here. Thanks so much. So Lance, it's been a great week. See you next week. All right, folks, um, just details on the conference real quick. Um, if you haven't registered for it yet, if you're watching this this weekend, uh, it's time to, uh, to, you know, lock things in. Uh, we still have the, the last chance to save discount price up until midnight on Sunday. So if you're able to do so, um, head over to wealthion.com slash conference. You'll find all the details of the conference there and uh, you'll be able to lock in that last chance to save discount before it rises to the full price on Monday morning. And if you're watching this video after that, well, you still have until up until the morning of October 21st, which is a Saturday, 
uh, to buy your ticket because on that Saturday, we're then doing the conference. If you can't watch the conference live, don't worry. Everybody who watches is going to be sent a replay video of the entire event, all the presentations, all the Q&A. Uh, so it's um, it, uh, everybody's going to get a chance to get uh, to be able to watch everything uh, within 24 hours of the event ending, hopefully even sooner. Um, and as we do every week uh, on this channel, I think Lance made a couple of great points on it this week, especially if you're interested in buying bonds, like individual bonds. Highly recommend that you work um, in trying to figure out what to how to guide your capital through what's coming. Work under the guidance of a good professional financial advisor who understands all the macro issues that Lance and I talked about and takes them into account in their portfolio allocations. If you've got a good one who's doing that for you, great, stick with them. But if you don't, or you'd like a second opinion from one who does, perhaps even Lance and his team there at RIA, then fill out the short form at Wealthion.com to uh, schedule a free consultation with one of the financial advisors that Wealthion endorses. These consultations are totally free. There's no commitment to work with these guys. It's just a free public service that these financial advisors offer to help as many people as possible, position as prudently as possible for what's most likely to happen ahead. Thanks so much for hanging with me, everybody. If you enjoy these weekly market recaps with Lance, want to see them continue into the future, please vote your support for that by hitting the like button, then clicking on the red subscribe button below, as well as that little bell icon right next to it. Thanks so much for watching, everybody. We'll see you next week.